Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share their most recent work. Today, it was so much fun chatting with Kelly McGonigal, a health psychologist and lecturer here at Stanford who specializes in understanding the mind-body connection. She is the best-selling author of The Willpower Instinct and The Upside of Stress. Her TED Talk, How to Make Stress Your Friend, is one of the most viewed TED Talks of all time, with over 27 million views. Kelly's latest book, The Joy of Movement, explores why physical exercise is a powerful antidote to the modern epidemics of depression, anxiety, and loneliness. In January 2020, Oprah Magazine named Kelly the first ever O-Visionary, people whose groundbreaking way of seeing the world mean a better future for us all. In this episode, we chat about science communication and the joys and challenges that come from engaging with the public about the latest findings from psychology at a time where many distrust science and where psychologists themselves have become skeptical about the accuracy of their findings. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Today, I am thrilled to be speaking with none other than Kelly McGonigal. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. And I think if you had told me when, back when I was an arriving graduate student at Stanford, wondering if I was going to even be able to get through my first year, that mm. someday I'd be interviewed for the official Stanford Psychology Podcast, <laughs> I would have been very relieved and very amazed. I love that. Yeah, I just finished my first year in graduate school and you would think I know what I'm doing, but I really Congratulations. Like, <laughs> you know, somebody you. told me my first year of graduate school that uh, if you can make it to your third year, that's when you'll know that you truly deserve to be there and you belong. And I remember spending my first two years like with my fingers crossed thinking, okay, I just need to make it to year three. And I actually don't know if that was actually true. Um but it's, it's funny, you know, so we're just now at that point in time of being back to school, new students mm -hmm. arriving. And I always get so nostalgic. It's actually my favorite time of year is that back to school, even though I know that for so many people arriving at, at a place like Stanford or anywhere, that it so often is fraught with, you know, worries mm -hmm. about will I belong? Will I succeed? Um, it's, it's an interesting time. And the worries don't go away easily. And graduate school is so interesting because you just fail constantly at everything you do. And at some point, people are like, you make progress. Great. You're a second year now. And yeah. <laughs> that's an interesting concept where yeah, you know, it is. is so rewarded. It is. And I also remember, you know, learning that I had to ask for help. That was a big lesson mm. my first year. You know, speaking of failures, um, I'm sure you haven't heard this story, but my first year as a graduate student, I made an error in merging data files that... Uh, basically had implications for five different people working in my lab. They'd been analyzing the wrong data for months. And mm. it was an undergraduate research assistant who discovered my error. And mm. I had to first tell my advisor and then tell everyone else on the project. And uh, if my advisor had not responded to that with empathy, mm. I think I would have like quit the degree. It was such a, a horrifying experience. So... That's so beautiful, though, the response from your advisor. And it's so yeah. important. I've had mistakes like this. And, you know, my advisors hadn't I been like, completely. They were like, cool, congratulations on your first failure. Um, <laughs> completely not surprised this had to happen at some point. And it's just so such a relief to hear this. 
yeah. not just in graduate school, but just in life, you know, I know. <laughs> everyone's I know. constantly failing. It's such a good reminder, you know, whether you're a parent or a manager or, you know, a community organizer, anyone in any role to sort of let someone off the hook of deep personal shame um, when it comes to something that is inevitable, like making a mistake. Yeah, it's that it truly is a gift to others. I love it. I know we're actually already talking about a lot of the themes of our research. Um, so I know we're, we're sort of just like walking, talking the talk right now, I guess, or are we walking the walk? <laughs> We're demonstrating a growth mindset and all of that, <laughs> embracing stress. You got to, yeah. If you're even remotely Stanford affiliated and you're not demonstrating <laughs> it's required. a growth mindset, you're a hypocrite. Yeah. <laughs> Although actually Carol Zweck was not in the department when I arrived. So that was that was a benefit uh, for, for later arriving graduate <laughs> students. Yeah. <laughs> so So tell me more about your journey. So you were in graduate school and now you are an author, a speaker, you're lecturing, you're a dance instructor, you're doing all mm -hmm. these wonderful things that are really um, unique in their combination and that I haven't really seen in many places. What is your journey from, from this one place to the other? Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. I always had a desire to share um, research and science with the public. So when I was a undergraduate, I was writing for websites, um, talking about health research and psychology. Um, and I, I had this like instinct that I had to know more about how research was done. I just, I knew that journalism alone was not going to help me help others. I really mm. wanted to understand things in a, a deep way that I suspected getting a PhD would help me with. And I was at the time involved in research as an undergraduate, which, you know, the things I'm looking back now, what I researched, we were recruiting sociopaths through um, the, the weekly bulletin, the free like Boston paper. So basically my research, we were recruiting sociopaths and that was such an interest. And I was one of the two people who actually ran the experiments. Um, anyways, uh, but so I loved the research process too. And things like, you know, discovering that through statistics, you can see things that are invisible to other people. That was like a big aha moment for me too. And a reason that I wanted to get a PhD is that you could, you could through statistics, analyze information and suddenly see relationships between variables that, that you did not know existed or see patterns that otherwise wouldn't be visible if you were just thinking mm -hmm. about things. You know, that's what I loved about experimental psychology is the contrast to if I just sit down and think about this, what do I think? <laughs> so like the, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. the, you know, the philosophers who just require logic and not necessarily being grounded in evidence um, or the idea that if you just make your argument persuasive enough, it, it doesn't matter what the content is. It's the other thing I loved about psychology is it reminded me of my training um, in visual arts. So before mm -hmm. I went to college, I, I thought about becoming a visual artist and my favorite form of art was portraiture and realism. So like hyper-realism of landscapes and objects. And the whole process of that is just looking and looking and looking until you get it right. Do you really mm. see what the crease of someone's eyelid looks like? Or is it what mm. you think their eyelid looks like? Like look at it a million times until you're sure that's actually what the eyelid is, the shape and the form and the light. Um, and so I felt like psychology of all of the areas uh, that I was exposed to, psychology was the one that was most like that in asking you to look and look again and look again and see if you can describe the world in a way that, and I guess, I mean, lots of sciences do that, but because I'm so interested in the human experience, I felt like it was the, the field that described the human experience with that level of 
of precision and desire to get it right. So, I love so that. that's how I got um, started. I love that because sometimes I perceive this bias in science where it's like the only way to come up with new research ideas is by looking at previous research. And I'm mm. like, you can do that, but you can also just look at the world, right? We interact with people, especially in social psychology. Every you know interaction you have with anyone is a source of information and you know a research idea. And there's just you know even watching Netflix can can um, you know, <laughs> that is true. And I will say, although I was trained in experimental psychology, I love qualitative research. And um, part of what I did as a graduate student was I got trained in how to run focus groups through the School mm -hmm. of Medicine. It's just sort of like a random thing I decided to do. And that has been so useful to me as an author in terms of interviewing people um, and trying to, like with a real sense of curiosity, what is your lived experience and uh, allowing myself to be surprised, um, which again, it's, I guess it's sort of like running subjects over and over, but in experiments, um, you know, you're waiting for, you have these hypotheses that you, you know, you have to have them in advance. And there is something that, you know, that's how we do research now. Um, but which is not always true, but, um, with qualitative research, it's so great to go in with that openness and curiosity and saying, I want to understand your, your experience. And if I talk to enough people, I might learn something that I could not have hypothesized. And so for my most recent book, there was a chapter that took me forever to write, which is trying to understand the psychological reasons that people engage in ultra endurance um, mm -hmm. athletic events, like mm -hmm. running hundreds of miles without sleep um, or doing these things that basically when I hear them described, they sound like my nightmare, like a surrealist <laughs> nightmare. You know, these people who are trekking across the Arctic and they have to be rescued because they're hypothermic and they have frostbite and all these. And I'm like, why are people choosing to do this? And it took me months and months of talking to people to hear, hear uh, things that were surprising and beautiful and fascinating and then totally understandable. Um, and that, but that were different than my lived experience. So, I love this. So, just like we talked about, um, you know, being in the real world, being outside of academia can inspire research ideas. Doing research and being in graduate school or just doing research of any kind can influence how you interact with people in the real world, right? It's not something that you, you know, it's not like you acquire these skills and then you use them for your job and then you go home and be a totally different person, right? You can use these skills that you learn to some extent and apply them to have better conversations and learn more about human nature. Have you found that? So you were telling me a little bit about the topic of your own research. Have you found that that's actually influencing like your relationships? <laughs> um, or your teaching? I, Have you started teaching yet? I just finished my course, my first own uh, summer course uh, today. And uh, my God, it's wonderful. Um, yeah. what you learn from your students also. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that is a very uncynical attitude, right? So I, I was, I was curious if in studying cynicism and, and anti-cynicism, do you have a term that you use to describe anti-cynicism? It's so funny that you mentioned this, uh, Jamil and I have been thinking about this for a long time and we don't, it's certainly not naivety, right? Because yeah. it's like the only alternative to cynicism is being completely naive and no. Well, I told you, I, I think enthusiasm. So you got, mm. so, okay. So one of the benefits of also studying Buddhism is they have all of these wonderful words to describe um, attitudes that one might strive for. Mm. And I love uh, wholeheartedness, um, mm. energeticness, energetic enthusiasm, 
fierce enthusiasm. There's all these Mm. ideas that there's a way of being really open-hearted and sincere that Mm. is about being brave and being of use in the world, that having that level of openness um, and willingness is a strength that will support being discerning, being uh, effective, being skillful, and being able to take joy in what you're doing and take joy in other people. You know, one of my most favorite emotions that I I think I thought if I was going to continue with research, this was the emotion I really wanted to study is um, sympathetic joy or empathic joy, Mm -hmm. this ability to take joy in seeing other people thrive, succeed, be happy, experience love, learn and grow, use their strengths is a Mm -hmm. a particular kind of happiness. Um, That's not exactly contagious happiness. It really is Mm -hmm. a a sense of um, feeling glad for others mm. joy. Um, so that, so as you continue that research, I hope that you can, right? it's not na- naivete. It's, there's something, you know, to be anti-cynical is a stance towards life that is a, almost like a willingness to engage and be used and serve and see the good so and it's so self-fulfilling right if you trust people they trust you and if you're you know yeah if you don't trust people you're not trusted back and as i was just teaching it was going to be over zoom i knew it and i was like how am i going to make sure people don't cheat on the exams but then i was like but just making this assumption and communicating it to people and i could have you know installed all these controlling mechanisms to make sure they're not cheating this would have signaled like how much i don't trust them yes. and then they probably would have felt like well that might as well cheat, you know, if I find a way, because apparently he doesn't expect anything from me, but just by trusting them and saying, well, I know you could cheat, but I trust that you're better than that. You know, violating that feels so much more emotional and deep and and painful if you then go on and cheat. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, what's so great about that choice is you are focusing on the positive relationships that you can build rather than controlling a student who might have a certain instinct to cheat and put all your energy in trying to control a behavior that you probably can't control no matter what you do. Hmm. And to say, I'm going to invest in the relationships with students who will benefit from being trusted, who want that and crave that. I will be a role model for that. I think that's also, that's a lot of what being not cynical is about is it's not about being ignorant of the fact that, that humans have harmful instincts, mm-hmm. self-destructive and destructive impulses not everyone wishes you well as much as you wish them well, but that uh, it it doesn't serve you or or others to put all your energy in trying to control that element unless that's your job. Some people are are very effective at that. But I was going to say that I did something similar with the, my last um, teaching. We shifted my class in the graduate school of business for for PhD students to online for the very first time. I thought, how am I? Oh, what do we want this class to be? And how am I going to build some sort of positive relationship with people I'm never going to meet? Um, and so I filmed a video in which I thought, so I, I was thinking, what could this class be for students if it's not going to be the world's best class in public speaking, which is the topic? Like, like Zoom, a Zoom class in public speaking is not going to be the world's <laughs> best class in public speaking. What else could it be? And I, I thought about everything I'd heard about the stress that students were under as a result of the, the pandemic and all the stories that I'd heard and what I'd, what I'd experienced so far. So I made a video where I just talked about how the pandemic had affected me. I was open about a death in the family, about uh, 
friends and family being sick, missed opportunities professionally, my own struggle to stay motivated and experience, you know, hope and meaning Mm -hmm. in the midst of isolation. It was like the stuff I would never usually tell students. Mm -hmm. And I asked them to make a video for me in response, if there was anything they wanted to share about Mm -hmm. what the experience had been like for them. I got such interesting and equally self-disclosing videos. Um, It was just, it was, as you described that, that upward spiral or that self-fulfilling prophecy. And I really felt like it, it allowed me to be in a better position to adapt the class and to support students who, who wanted that kind of support, both professionally and personally. So I love this idea. Like we could all think about that whenever we go into a new interaction, not just teaching, but any sort of relationship that you're constructing, any sort of community that you're building, um, what do you want to be the source point of Mm. that by offering it first, you're inviting it in other people, you're demonstrating that it's safe to be that way in this environment and indicating what will be rewarded um, in this environment. Yeah, we talk about social belonging and how important it is when you want to focus and you know arrive at a new place in your college to feel like you belong. Um, but then to really, you know, induce this feeling of belonging, you can't just tell people you belong. <laughs> you know, I like you, let's let's have fun, or maybe even go to a bar one night. Um, it's better than nothing, maybe. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> uh that's, more that's so funny you're it's so for whatever reason talking to you and you know you just finished your first year is bringing up all these memories of my first year at stanford i actually remember being dragged to a local bar by um older phd students early in my first year and i remember carving into the table something about how depressed i was like i there was just like the idea of going out drinking with people I didn't really know. It was just like, mm. I was so depressed. And the where I found belonging that first year was actually the dance department. Mm. Where I was taking a whole bunch of dance classes that my advisor didn't know about as a way of trying to find some joy in my life. And I remember the, uh, my modern dance instructor afterwards was like, you should be, there, there's no thing as a dance major. And she didn't know I was a graduate student. She said, you should think about becoming a dance minor. And I just thought like, she didn't even know. She, she thought it was a freshman or something. Um, the idea that I could be in a, a space and somebody would see something in me that I valued in myself. That's what made me feel like I belonged. And spending a lot of time in the dance department was a very important part of my um, finding my way at Stanford. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So going back to your journey from being a PhD student to the person that you are now, it really seems like you didn't just stop, you know, your PhD or you finished your PhD and then all these other interests somehow magically popped up, right? They were there all along and the interest in science communication. And then somehow you found a way to make a profession out of it, even though I assume there was no big role model for it, no no big template for it. Yeah, I know. So um, there were definitely people who were in the public space talking about psychology in ways that I admired. So Robert Sapolsky was Mm -hmm. uh, one of them. Um, And I, you know, I, but it's true that I didn't have a good role model in terms of, I think the kind of independence that I was um, looking for, uh, you know, to, it, it's funny because I'm often introduced as a researcher or a scientist because that's what my PhD is in, but my life, I'm actually more like an artist, you know, mm-hmm. taking on creative projects, um, teaching and mentoring individuals in different creative ways. Um, 
And so I, I think I knew all along that I wanted to have a life that was more like an artist with that kind of freedom, but I also really deeply wanted to help people. And so I was experimenting with both as a graduate student. Uh, how can I apply research right now to help people? I started teaching for the School of Medicine's health improvement program, applying, teaching both like health psychology classes, as well as movement and exercise classes. Um, I started uh, doing some freelance editing and writing again around these topics in education and psychology. Um, and I, I guess what I found is that as a teacher, that really was where I was going to get to experience both creativity and, um, and helping people. And I kind of went all in on teaching. And where I was so lucky is that um, my advisor, James Gross, who was an amazing researcher and thinker, he helped me so much in terms of becoming, uh, having more clarity as a thinker but he also was a fabulous teacher. Mm. And um, he actually brought me back to Stanford after I graduated. I was out in the world. I was writing and I was teaching. Uh, and he brought me back to um, run the Psych One program, the Introduction to Psychology class. And so I got to spend three years uh, in that role, mentoring graduate students, developing the curriculum, really thinking about how to teach psychology to people who had never been exposed to it before. And that was probably my best training for what I do now was that time that I spent developing Psych One um, and thinking about like, how do I explain the value and the meaning of all of this, this research so that it comes alive to people so that it, and like, you know, what I was always craving in Psych One was I want that student to come to my office hours and be like, wow, now I have a whole new way to think about this thing in childhood that traumatized me or why I'm falling in love with this person in my dorm or, you know, this emotion, like what this anxiety is doing to my body. I just, that's what psychology has always been so exciting to me is helping people understand what it means to be human in a way that increases self-empathy and mm. then hopefully also empathy for others. So, um, so that was, that got me pretty far in my path. Um, by the time I was writing books, they were all based on things that I, I was teaching. My first book was about mind-body approaches to pain management, which came out of the classes that I taught through the School of Medicine for people with, with pain and physical challenges. And then the next book, The Willpower was uh, Instinct, was based on the science of willpower, which I developed as a course at Stanford. Um, and it, things just basically kept on developing that way. Teaching is so underrated, isn't it? We all think, of, not all of us, but many of us think of it as, you know, you just have to do it. It's in the way of doing research. You just have to, yeah. especially in right. Germany, I did my undergrad. You're just being lectured by the professors who really don't want to be there. And then you as a student don't want to be there. And yeah. it's, it's, it's just so sad. not engaging. And it could be <laughs> so much more. I was going to say, it depends who you ask. So both of my parents were classroom teachers and uh, they could not be more delighted that mm -hmm. I am still teaching and they take full mm -hmm. credit for it. Nature and nurture, they say. They, I got mm -hmm. both from them. Um, but so I, I mean, I remember just, you know, watching how much my parents gave their all to teaching. I mean, my, let's so you talk about teachers who don't want to be there. I had the opposite role models. I mean, you know, my mom was so dedicated to teaching and to her students. So she would, you know, mm -hmm. maybe this isn't a good role model. I don't know. It's, I certainly have turned my life into this. Like she'd come home from the classroom and she would spend all night developing um, teaching materials and teaching new teachers through graduate programs at like city college in New York and working with the government to help underperforming schools and visiting her students who were struggling to help their parents figure out, you know, 
how to adapt the curriculum to support individual students. I mean, she was just, she was all in all the time. And my father was, uh, was similar, um, but sort of from the more creative point of view. So as a history instructor, he also was um, like a civil war reenactor. And, uh, you know, he would collect objects related to history and spend time in the community of people who were just obsessed with history and, and really just caring about and sharing it. So, so those are my role models. And so that's basically, you know, I, I feel so fortunate that I get to spend basically my entire day thinking about things I'm interested in and figuring out how to teach and share them with others. It seems like science communication and teaching share a lot in common. I mean, I've never written a book and I have taught one class. So, so what am I talking about? But in the one class that I have taught, <laughs> in my infinite experience here, um, I've really felt like there's a lot of skills that overlap where you have to communicate complicated things in an easy way, at least if you want to be good and people actually follow along. Yeah, it's interesting. Sort of that helps, right? So I, yeah, I thought a lot about science communication. One thing I found out really early on is that a lot of people have not had the experience of actually understanding a scientific concept. And I mean this, uh, you know, with all respect, but there are a lot of people who get a feeling that it is related to the idea that something is scientific and it fills them with a kind of confidence or hope, mm -hmm. even if they don't actually understand the scientific idea. So, you know, for example, an idea that I might talk about in my research is the idea that experience changes the brain. And you can, in, in ways that are helpful and harmful, but that you could choose experiences that help develop your brain in ways that you value, whether it's how exercise helps make the brain more sensitive to joy or protected against depression um, or, you know, well, well, whatever it might be, something like that. But so what I found is that lots and lots of people will never understand what, what neuroplasticity actually is. They will never be interested in receptor density or have an image of how the brain changes in structure or function. It's so abstract to them that all you can really communicate is the feeling. And so I had to come to terms with that and think, okay, so how can I embrace the idea that for a lot of people, science communication is about a feeling and make sure that whatever concrete details I'm saying are grounded in the scientific reality so that I don't accidentally communicate a feeling that is divorced from reality, like um, that you start to see in sort of pseudoscience circles, mm -hmm. like positive thinking can cure cancer or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, and so that's that's been a big challenge for me in terms of science communication is it's not so much about making the idea easy. It's actually figuring out the simplest way to say something that's still true so that if like the neuroscientists were to wander in and fact check you, is that sentence true? Even if it is not everything, <laughs> do you mm. know what I mean? Like in the process of simplifying it, is it still right? It just is not all the details. Um, and I feel like if that, if I can get to that point, then I'm okay with the fact that a lot of people will just have a feeling about the science. And then I've actually like really doubled down on that in terms of thinking about scientific ideas that I want to get into the public that I believe aren't there yet. And so mm -hmm. for my last book, there was a, a research finding that I'd been seeing for a couple of years that I was fascinated by. And I literally had never heard anyone talk about it in, 
in a public way. I was only reading about it in scientific journals. And it was the idea that when you exercise, your muscles release chemicals into your bloodstream that do everything from improve your heart health, boost your immune function. And what I was particularly interested in, change your brain in Mm -hmm. ways that make you braver, less depressed, more resilient, better able to connect with other people. I was like fascinated by this idea that every time you work out, your muscles are releasing chemicals that travel to your brain. Like that, that was, cause you, I don't know, like there's something, there's such a feeling to that idea that yeah, your yeah. muscles are doing this for you. And so I was trying to think like, how am I going to explain this to get this idea out into the public in a way that's accurate and also has a feeling. And I was so lucky that one of the research articles that was describing this it actually wasn't even the research article. It was, uh, you know, the front of a scientific journal where people be like talking about the articles in that, that issue. Mm-hmm. A lot of people never see this because they don't actually get physical copies of journals. But until recently, I was still getting in the mail physical mm-hmm. journals. So I get to read those like editor's notes. And the editor in their commentary came up with this term hope molecules. And they were just like, Has, have these researchers identified hope molecules? And I was like, that's it. That's <laughs> the thing. That's the phrase. And I'm going to apply that phrase to the entire concept of myokines and call them hope molecules, because every time you exercise, you are literally giving yourself an intravenous dose of hope into your bloodstream that travels to the brain in ways that reduce depression and anxiety and boost you know, courage and, and motivation. So, so that's like an example of how I think about science communication is I'm looking for the idea that is meaningful, the idea that people don't yet know, and to put a phrase around it so that it becomes something that motivates people to do something that actually will relieve their suffering or strengthen communities. Like that's the other idea behind it too, is I'm very motivated to share ideas that I think will be of service, not, so like, um, there are whole interesting scientific ideas that I explicitly do not address. I just don't think they are useful. Mm. Like in the willpower book, I decided not to write about genetic influences on self-control, even though people were always asking me about it because there literally was not a single thing I could tell people from the research that I thought would empower them. Hmm. Like, yeah, sure. There are genetic influences, but what, why are you asking this? Are you, tr- are you looking at a human being and saying that they don't have the capacity to develop self-control and self-regulation? Are you looking for a reason to be hard on yourself and say, Oh, I just don't, or, or let yourself, you know, off the hook. Oh, I just mm-hmm. don't have mm-hmm. any willpower. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just seems so much more interesting to talk about research on things like how every human being has a vulnerability. And when you define willpower correctly and broadly, you will see that everyone is struggling with something and that it's not like there's a gene for willpower. It's that there are these genetic susceptibilities to things that can get in the way of making those Mm -hmm. choices that are consistent with your goals and values. And then you get to talk about like, what, like what's yours and what's mine. And I get to talk about how anxiety is mine and how that's part genetic and part not genetic. And also like that, I don't know, in a way that's humanizing. So that's also part of science communication is the, the filtering, the curation of ideas and looking for how people respond to ideas to see if it's empowering them or disempowering them. It's such a powerful look behind the scenes, because if you just read the book, you just read the pages and, you know, the author just put down the words and here's the citations. It must have been easy to write it, but 
there's so much thinking that you don't see. And you also look more than what is in the book, I assume, right? All right. How many authors have you talked to? This is what I want to know. You said you talked to Robert Sapolsky. Does he find writing books easy? Because he's somebody who looks like he could probably, it probably is easy for him. Did he, did you talk to him about that? We, we talked about it and we were talking about his, I wanted to call it his new and upcoming book. And he was like, please don't call it that because I've been meaning to write it for like two years and I have, I get stuck and I don't know what to do. And I was like, Sapolsky gets stuck. Oh, even him. Books. Like, Good to know. My God, right? Yeah. No. So he's struggling. I always feel like people, um, people who are writing books who say it's easy are just doing something different. <laughs> they might still be writing wonderful books, but they're, there are people who are just doing something different. I to, so I have a twin sister. She's an amazing writer. And she literally just wrote a 150,000 word book in three months. It took <laughs> me three years to write my last book. And I, it was barely 60,000 words. She And when I talk to her, what's so interesting is she like, I just decide what I want to say. And then I write it. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, but what about that part where you're spending hundreds of hours scouring the scientific literature for the one study <laughs> like is going to with the one scientific detail about the way they measured or manipulated something like oh that part doesn't exist okay i guess it's, people are doing something different but for those of us who are it's like an excavation process it's a like deep deep uh, reporting all of that yeah not easy and these days in psychology, at least, it doesn't even suffice to just know all the papers because maybe they don't replicate, right? Maybe oh, the methodology is strong enough. And so you can't just, just knowing yeah. the facts isn't enough. You also have to I know. be methodologically yes. trained. And it's so hard. So I, said, I said I wanted to talk about this too, because it is, it's a challenge. So one of, the, one of my goals is to introduce people to research they haven't heard before, which means I'm often writing about research that has been published in the last few years. And one of the things I often try to do is, okay, let's look for, if I'm going to write about this, can I find a body of research that is really consistent with it, even though it's from a completely different area, or it was done 50 years ago with animal models rather than human models, like to look for the research that even though this is the new and interesting and fascinating finding, if this particular study does not hold up, did I at least mm -hmm. share an idea that probably has value in it because you can see it in anthropology and you can see it in comparative psychology. And there was a philosopher who had a similar thought, you know, 5,000 years ago. Um, I, I look for that rather than, because otherwise you might as well just write a blog and be like, Hey, cool study. I don't know what it means or if it's going to hold up, but it's fascinating. That's, you know, that's a great thing to do also. And I did that for a while for psychology today, but uh, yeah, there, sometimes you, you think you have an idea that's really grounded in reality and over the years, uh, that becomes less likely. So I had that that one experience with the Willpower book where I always say, I'm so proud that of nine chapters, eight of them have be, become deepened and further supported where I really believe that the ideas in those chapters, if you, if you understand and apply them as I described in that book that I wrote 10 years ago, um, is going to help you. And then there's that one little idea that... There are huge like replication crisis around yeah. that I wish I could cut. And we're, so we're talking about the um, the muscle model of self-control and, and some, very, some very specific ideas around it um, and what it means to believe that willpower is finite uh, and particularly the emphasis on the idea that you should be, I don't know, conserving willpower um, or that your willpower will run out. 
if you do things that are difficult for you. So I wish I could rewrite that chapter, um, but it is challenging. And the, you know, the good thing is, is that even within that chapter, I was able to contextualize that idea um, with, with research that I saw was really helping people in my classes, this idea that, okay, so if you, if you don't have unlimited resources, what's the value of setting clear priorities? What's the idea? What's the value of um, creating an environment that supports your goals so that you're not always relying on self-control? Um still getting ideas into that chapter that are very strongly supported by ongoing research and direct experience. But um, yeah. It's tough. But on the one hand, you want to communicate this confidence that you were talking about, that people can be like, ha, I read this in a science book and oh, I believe it's kind of true, but you also don't want to be like science has found it and therefore it is true, right? Science is yeah. changing. Oh, absolutely can not. Find out and can turn out to be completely yep. wrong. I mean, so one of the things that I always did when I actually taught the willpower class is I would introduce people to the idea of a normal curve, even though, of course, populations are not always normally distributed. But I would explain to them what it means when a study finds something, which I discovered that a lot of people didn't know that when a study, like people literally did not understand that when a psychology study finds something to be likely to be true, it is not saying this is true for all human beings. It is saying that there's an average difference. Like there's, there's an effect and it's not true for everyone. It's not equally true for everyone that it's true for. And there are outliers. And I had to like put up graphs showing what like, uh, you know, a simple t-test might look like so that people understand that even if this idea probably says something important and useful about human nature, you may be an outlier. This may not be true for you. It may not be true in all contexts and you have to listen to your direct experience. So uh, I, that's why in that class, I always call them willpower experiments rather than like willpower rules. So if it's true that remembering your why will help you make a choice that's consistent with your goals when you're tempted, um, if that's like, that's a good idea, there's good research on that. Now do it as an experiment in your own life, get clear on what your why is, figure out ways to remind yourself of it and test it. Did it help you or not? And it either will or it won't, right? And then you've got your data and move on with your life, like use it or don't. So um, I do really, I, I try to communicate that in everything that I do. And it's, it is really interesting because, um, you know, I also have worked in a lot of areas where people want science to be proof of their biases and beliefs. And they're really looking to you as the one who understands science to come in and to create almost propaganda on behalf of an idea or a practice. So I'm talking about things like meditation or yoga. Um, and people are often shocked when I come in and I'm like, I, I'm not giving you science so that you can convince other people that what you're doing is right and beneficial. If we're going to talk about science, what I want to do is explain to you what people are likely to experience, how things work so that you can be more effective. If you are teaching meditation, you have a better understanding of the variety of experiences people might have. So you can support them. You can explain it in a way that might be motivating. And that's very different than using science to, um, to, to try to persuade people that what you, what you do is valuable. And it's so, you know, it's a, it's a fine line to walk. But I also like that's something I'm also very personally committed to as well, 
is to try to keep the humility uh, when you are basically being a cheerleader for something. And, you know, a lot of my books are cheerleading for something. My, my most recent book was a huge cheerleader for physical activity and movement for mental health and social connection. Um, but even within that, trying really hard to explore the boundaries of that. And this is how you can tell a true scientist because they're careful with their claims, right? They're not overclaiming in some grandiose way. And, um, you know, Lee Ross was a faculty member here who passed yeah. away recently, sadly. But one of the last things that he wrote was about um, generalizing findings in science. And he's like, it's not only the case that every study is somewhat like tragically limited because you can only run it on so many people in a certain place. Sometimes it is the point of the study to run it in a very constrained environment that is, you know, very different from all kinds of other environments, such as the, you know, famous uh, Milgram experiments and shock experiments that were in a very particular setting in which we could criticize the methodology all we want, you know, whatever you want to conclude from it. It was run in a very specific setting where, you know, it requires a lot of skills for a social psychologist or a scientist uh, to create the situation in which people are just really so obedient that they literally think they're shocking someone. And he's like, but, you know, that doesn't mean that, this is human nature and we're all Nazis all the way down. We're just like lying to ourselves. And it's so much more complicated, right? You can't just make it this. Is. It is. So this is what I found also is there, the way that I think about science is I'm trying to create like an aggregate understanding of the world and of human experience that is full of nuances. And that is different from people who are looking for like laws and rules mm -hmm. that it, that are always going to be true and always apply and allow things to be simpler. So for me, it's like super exciting when I find a study that contradicts other studies, because I'm thinking, okay, could they both be true? What would that mean? What's the distinction here? What's different? Almost like a, like a legal mind works. What what makes this true in one situation and not in the other? And what's the important clarification? Um, how, and I just, I love thinking that you could have an increasingly nuanced understanding of the world. And that is why I read, you know, like 30 or 40 abstracts a day, mm. you know, God, God bless Google alerts. And then I don't necessarily read 40 papers a day, but I, you know, I've already read two this morning that have enhanced my nuanced understanding of a, uh, today, the look, doing a deep dive on some positive emotions, particularly um, pro-social positive emotions, got some more nuanced understanding in there. And um, that's another thing that I think is uh, something that people in research often appreciate that people who have not trained in research don't, um, is that a new study coming out is not about, okay, I guess we were wrong. It's, oh, more data that allows us to have more understanding what does a day in your life look like just mm. asking for a lot of people who want to be uh in a similar position as you and might not know you know what would this life look like what, is, what does a day in your life look like yeah i mean it's going to be it's really different depending on whether i am in the, the deep process of writing a book or not so i am in the process right now of trying to convince myself to write another book so i'm spending yay uh, what is the book going to be about? I can't tell you. <laughs> okay. I'm not committed to it yet. I'm in the process where I'm going to like Green Library at Stanford and walking mm -hmm. the aisles. I, I have in my office right now about 20 books from the philosophy department uh, and a few from the anthropology area on the topic I'm thinking of writing about. Because one of the things I do is when I'm thinking of writing about something is 
I want to, I want to immerse myself in ideas that I'm not yet exposed to so that I don't write the extremely mm, expected version. Like this mm. to say like, what's, what, what, what are the 10 most important psych- psychological studies on a topic? And then write that book. That's never going to be the book that I'm going to write. So mm. I first mm. swim around in a bunch of ideas I don't understand yet so that I start rooting and in interesting ideas in things like anthropology or, you know, for willpower is spending a lot of time reading behavioral economics. Um, mm. And for my last book, spending a lot of time looking at anthropology, which is a field that I had not really explored before. Anyway, so that's, that, so that's sort of part of what's happening right now. If I'm actually writing a book, what a day in my life looks like is like 12 hours of writing and ignoring everything else and <laughs> wearing the same clothes day after day. Um, but, uh, you know, right now in my life, because the only thing that I'm doing in person is teaching dance. I literally spend half my day dancing in terms of working on choreography, practicing what I'm going to teach, thinking about uh, an experience I'm going to design for students today. How am I going to sneak a little bit of psychology in? Like where in class am I going to get to give a psychological intervention, a mindset intervention through movement, through music, um, which I do try to do every day. And um, and actually going on and teaching. So I'm teaching between one and two classes a day now. Um, mm. And this is all still because of COVID, you know, so much is still not happening in person. Um, and what a joy it is to get to spend half of the day thinking about dance and dancing and creating positive collective mm. joy experiences through movement. Um, so, and that is the benefit of, you know, we started this conversation talking about, me trying to find my own way as a graduate student and like taking the risk of not becoming a, a tenured professor and researcher, but choosing the life of an artist. And part mm-hmm. of that benefit is I, like, I'm still spending half my day dancing. Like I was when I was a graduate student, sneaking off to the dance department to take three dance classes a day. It sounds pretty amazing. Yeah. It doesn't sound like a bad plan B that you had to. Embrace. Oh no, it's, it's not like plan B. Plan yeah. It's yeah. a wonderful plan. A, and I've always said, that if I had to give up everything else, the one thing I would keep doing is teach movement experiences because frankly, it allows me to apply everything I know about psychology. I know that it makes a difference in people's lives and it fills me with joy. Uh, unlike say writing a book, which I believe can help people, but it's not joyful. <laughs> it just, you know, I mean, there, we do different things in life. Some are meaningful and some are meaningful and joyful. So if I had to give up everything else, I would, um, I would continue to teach movement. As long as I can. Um, what would your advice be for someone who is in graduate school, or even an undergrad, interested in science communication and does not know where to start? Maybe has some interesting data at hand or other people's research. Mm. And like, where do I even start? Should I be starting now? Should I wait? Yes. So the, you know, when I am doing it well, I don't always do it well, but when I'm doing it well, I think I'm using principles that I learned from. Um, narrative journalism and oral storytelling. So this is, these are some topics that I have taken classes in and studied and studied uh, also not formally. So when I teach my um, communications class for graduate students, I often will encourage them to listen to things like the moth um, and story and, you know, this American life and science collider um, all of these, these places where people are telling stories. 
And what you learn is that it's the concrete details that make things come to life, as well as um, when people drop into a state that is authentic, whether it's showing authentic curiosity or wonder, showing passion, showing anger, showing, you know, all of these, whatever it is, when people drop into real authentic emotions and when people are specific about their details. So, you know, one of the things that I always find myself telling graduate students when they're talking about their research is I need the crunchy details, which is something you would learn from, from journalism. That is, I don't give me the abstraction. If you're telling me that you manipulated X, I want you to manipulate me. Do it yeah. to me. Show me. Mm. Don't, don't describe, like, get, show me the picture. Show me a video. Tell me everything. What does it sound like? What does it feel like? Um, the, the crunchiest details that you can give someone. For example, there was a, a researcher. I'll try to give these. I don't want to like talk about a researcher. It doesn't give me content to talk about her. But she was talking about her research in all these abstract terms. And it turns out that what she was doing, what she was actually doing was manipulating how people were exposed to dogs in a pet adoption app in a way that made it more likely people would adopt a dog and become extremely in love with the dog they adopted. I had talked to this woman three times about her research and I didn't have no idea what she was doing. And then all of a sudden now we're talking about choosing puppies. Like how could you talk about your research and not show me pictures of puppies? So this is one of the things I'm often like, I see this all the time, like developmental psychologists who will give a talk about their work. And I'm like, do you have videos of these babies doing this task? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, do you have their permission to show the videos? Yes. Why are you not starting this presentation with videos of babies? Mm. Um, Go to the crunchy details. Don't make it abstract, evoke emotions. Um, So that's, you know, the advice I would give to people who are interested in science communication is everything is more interesting when you can concretize it. Um, and for whatever reason, people think that abstracting things makes it easier to understand, and it doesn't. It's so much easier to understand when you see the baby. You know? Do you know what I mean? And there's so much curse of knowledge, right? Yeah. You, so you show them the baby. So, yeah. You yeah. Just, and then and then explain the concept. <laughs> um, how do you balance between uh, breadth and depth? Because I feel like in graduate school, especially, there's so much incentive to narrow down on one topic, and that's great. But then there's also people like me who just are interested in everything. I want to know everything about everything. And <laughs> it's just such a hard balance to do in science communication, just in, in, in life and your interests. How do you ever focus and, and narrow down without being like too narrow? I think that, you know, one of the things that I found early on was at a certain point, um, I couldn't go deeper anymore without running into the same ideas. Hmm. And I found that there was a certain level of, of depth you could acquire if you're not going to be the leading expert in the world where you like you could write these papers introduction and discussion yourself maybe not mm. the data you didn't know the data but like you've read it all to you know you could have written that introduction and i felt like that was that was something that i decided i wanted to do for all the topics i was interested in is to dive deeply enough that i feel like I'm not learning anything anymore when I'm reading the introductions and discussion sections of anything. I'm not learning anything anymore when I read the review papers. Um, what I'm learning is just the data from, from individual studies. I feel like that was a really great place for me to be with the mm. things that I cared about. 
So I don't, you know, how do you achieve that? For me, it was just, I'm a, a voracious reader. So I just, I figured it's like, you have to eat every day. You need to read every day. You need to read more than anybody else. Just read, 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 read. Uh, and that is still how I go about my life to sort of stay on top of things is with all my Google alerts and that sort of thing and, and reading the review papers. Um, but then in terms of breath, um, you know, I think how wonderful it would be if everyone felt they had the permission to explore um, other fields that are addressing the same things you're interested in. And, you know, as a graduate student, taking a medical anthropology class was really useful. Um, taking uh, creative writing classes was really useful. And to just think that the, the breath comes often not from your own field. It's not like you want to be an expert in everything in your field. Mm. Your, your breath should come from perspectives where if what you're doing is interesting and useful and saying something true about the world, you'll see it represented in other fields, mm. but you'll also, you'll see things that you're missing because your field doesn't know how to develop this type of knowledge or your field isn't really accessing the human experience in these parts of the world, as well as, you know, other fields are. So that's what I would say is go, you know, go for the breath that comes not from, I need to be an expert in cognitive psychology and neuroscience and affective psychology and all of that. Be like, this is okay. This is the part of psychology I really care about. I'm going deep enough that every study I read, I, I could write the introduction or discussion myself and then go to other fields that are addressing the same topic. Do you still have to have a concentration? Are you, are you expected to take upper level courses in a different field? Uh, I'm not expected to do it. I'm allowed to do it. Ah, see, we were required to do it 20 years ago. And that was the best thing that the department ever did to me because I ended up getting a concentration in um, humanistic medicine, which was mm. basically the thing that put me on the path of uh, trying to apply psychology in the service of helping people mm. um, initially with health conditions and then just in general humans. Yeah, we're required to take all the core classes in the different subfields of psychology. But outside yeah. of psychology, everything would be on your own. Uh, gotta well, do that for yourself. So there's my advice to you. Do it. Yeah. Treat it like it's a requirement and create a curriculum for yourself. That is the, the like that other thing you would have done if you weren't doing what you're doing. I actually did yeah. too. I did the, the um, master's in dance education coursework. Actually, nobody in psychology knew about that. That was a secret. And then I did the official concentration in, in humanistic medicine. So you should have, maybe you should do that too. Have your one that you talk to your advisor about and then like do the secret thing on the side. That's okay. Jamil, I hope you're not. What would it be? Um, do you know? Do you have oh like God. a secret thing you would study? Uh, philosophy or anthropology? Yeah. Could That's all very legit though, too. I'm like, is there anything like even like that your advisor would be like, what? You're spending your time on what? I don't think so. I think Jamil literally told me if I want to become a dancer one day, he would support me. He wouldn't know how to, but he would support me. So I'm lucky, but I recognize that everyone is lucky. So maybe you have to be a little bit uh, more careful. But yeah, I'm I'm in lab meetings from all over the place in sociology and political science, uh, business school. And and it's really it's really enriching. Mm, political science, there's a good one. Yeah, I I can see that. That seems like a really interesting integration. Mm. Um, I think this would be a perfect point to end on. But I also want to give you an opportunity to say whatever you want um, to add something you want to add. 
No, I, I want to thank you for having this conversation in a way. This is like therapy for me. I really hope it's useful to anyone who listens. It's, it was, uh, it was wonderful to talk to you. You brought out a kind of, um, both nostalgia and enthusiasm in me. So I, I know that means that it's, it's in you, you were the source point of it today. So thank you.